This episode was recorded before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect official policies or position of the Church of England Pensions Board, any other organisation, employer or their employees. And now, on with the show. Artificial intelligence, we're still hunting for real proper intelligence. But we've got that on the podcast today. And they're here talking responsibly. And welcome to another episode of Talking Responsibly. Uh, I am your host, David Hickey. And joining me is my regular co-host, Adam Matthews. Adam, good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. And, and the intelligence you're talking about are our guests, aren't they? Are our guests. I mean, you talk yeah. about artificial intelligence. You know, the two of us have been searching for real intelligence for ages and failed to find it. But uh, that's why we have guests on, isn't it? Exactly. The informed informing the ill-informed. The <laughs> Yes, absolutely. You, you, you are, are you a, a big... Uh, techie guy adam yeah no, absolutely i i i i've worked out how to turn my computer on and um and i i dabble in the odd bit of i i think there's a few accounts on social media but um yeah i no, i'm not i'm terrible i'm absolutely terrible i struggle with my tv remote sometimes quite honestly but that, you, but you've, got, only... you've got three kids that's what kids well, are for, exactly that. they are very useful in that regard their ability and interaction with technology versus mine is quite scarily um adept so um I, but nonetheless, I recognise the importance of this subject, um, and my ignorance should not be a barrier to our sort of investigation. Well, absolutely. Well, we're hoping to educate uh, both you and I and our listeners, um, and for that, we've got two very, very special guests with us today. So I'm going to introduce our first special guest. Uh, now, our first guest is uh, uh, Christine uh, Chow, PhD, Dr. Christine. Uh, Christine is the uh, Global Head of Stewardship at HSB Asset Management and a board member of HSBC Asset Management UK. And she's got 25 years experience in investment management with a focus on both technology and sustainability. What a perfect mix for today. Um, she's a board member of the uh, International Corporate Governance Network or ICGN an organization led by investors responsible for assets uh, under management of over 59 trillion US dollars, uh, covering 39 countries and territories. She's an honorary advisor to the Financial Reporting Council of Hong Kong, and she is now an emeritus governor of the London School of Economics, following her completion of her six-year term as a member of court of the Investment Committee, or a member of Court and Investment Committee. Let's get that right. So, introducing first, our first guest, Christine the Governor. Ciao. Christine, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I was thinking about that intelligence uh, that you were thinking of, and I, I, and I think that, um, like everybody else, when I have a problem with with uh, with my computer, I just turn it on and off again. So I'm not sure if I'm 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 fit to be to be considered intelligence, but I'm I'm working on it. 
Yeah, I, th- I think I think we should point out here that uh, Christine's uh, got an, an extremely strong uh, technology uh, background in kind of the business uh, of technology and the the background of technology. But you know, she still can't share a screen on on Zoom the same as the rest of us. So don't be don't be too put <laughs> off by her her expertise. Um, we all suffer from some of the same problems. Uh, so uh, before we chat further, Christine, I- I'm going to bring in a second uh, special guest of the day. And our second guest is uh, Anna McDonald. Now, Anna uh, spent nearly 20 years in investment banking before moving to the Church of England to run the Church's Ethical Investment Advisory Group. And that group provides advice to the three investing bodies of the Church of England, including uh, Adam's Own Pension Board uh, and the Church Commissioners for England and the uh, Church of England Fund, which is uh, in turn managed by CCLA. Um, She lives in Cambridge, uh, is married to Rob, who is a university lecturer in theology and has three school-aid kids who are all sports mad sounds like your kids as well adam so welcoming to the pod uh anna mcdonald anna great to have you hi. on. <laughs> hi david how great are you today on. i'm great thank you good good so you know pe- people talk a lot about uh women in tech and there being a lack of women in tech we've managed to find two absolute top class experts women in tech um everyone else just needs to try a little bit harder i think um what are we what are we saying about that yes i'm getting nods on the screen remember guys this is this is a podcast so if you <laughs> nod our investors uh, our investors our listeners um who are we've not got investors, investors have we we've Fantastic. not got investors yet. Yeah, however nice. however <laughs> any listeners that want to uh, support the podcast in any way shape or form get in touch um Subtly right done mate yeah slick right did you like that that like Bit of a segue there. Um, so, yeah, Adam, over to you. Well, we've wanted to cover this subject because um, one of the areas of responsible investing is clearly our relationship with big tech and many of those very large holdings many of us have in our portfolios. And how do we approach this sector? I mean, it's it's enormous. It's a very sizable portion of, of many people's um, direct investments. Um the, the companies themselves have a huge bearing in terms of uh, society, um, the way we interact with it as individuals and, the, and some of the norms that are happening in society. And, and so really, what are the issues here for responsible investment? I think what would be really good is if we could have a bit of a conversation today to understand what, what sort of big tech is in the context of us as investors, um, build that foundation for us, and then then let's start looking at some of the issues that we should be thinking about, and then looking at some of the ways in which we can interact with that and some of the challenges, but it'd be some of the opportunities. So perhaps, Christine, if you could start us off. Yeah, happy to do that. And in fact, uh, some of my earliest ideas of engaging with big tech comes from the Church of England Pensions Board when I um, started talking to Anna and um, I was uh, it was I was invited to um, to have a conversation with Stephen Beers on uh, at CCLA uh, on why we need to focus on these issues. Sorry, we've we've, we've had two harsh. CCLAs now. Can, yeah, can someone remind me what one, CCLA is? Anna, uh, CCLA is a um, an investment management fund. There you and go. It stands for Churches, Charities, Charities and, local, and authorities. local Authorities. That's right. 
Christine, sorry Yay, for the well done. sorry for the uh, <laughs> the uh, interruption there. You were talking about speaking to CCLA. That's correct. Um, because um, the 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 initial engagement with big tech actually focused on the compliance of GDPR pre twenty fifteen, and that was when um, I started you know setting objectives um, with. Um, with not not only big tech, but the number of companies in the sectors because the regulation was coming in. And then it didn't take long to realize that the bigger issue behind um, the compliance of GDPR is is not just privacy, but actually the whole underlying application of um, big data. Where did the data come from? How it is being selected for training and testing? And it all sounds very sort of, only available and only understood by um, the mathematically inclined. And I thought that can't be right because um, if it's gonna impact all of us, if it's gonna impact all the pensioners and, and beneficiaries, we need to make it under well understood by everyone. So that was when I started uh, as a non-mathematician um, to look into um, what, what AI actually means. Um, and um, I was very lucky. Um, I uh, co-authored a paper with a friend of mine. He has been a technology lawyer for 30 years. Um, and we published the first paper um, called The Investor Expectations on Responsible AI and Data Governance in April 2019. I still remember when I was drafting that paper, I was asked by some um um, colleagues at the time and said that, well, I've never heard of AI being an ESG issue. And, uh, and, and I said, um, well, it, it will be, and I'm glad that it is now. Um, and in fact, uh, within the next 12 months, we actually presented it at the APRI conference on why it is important. I guess there are a few ways of looking at it. If we do want to put an ESG uh, lens on it, um, then we can do. Well, let's start off with the, the E part. Um, in when thinking of the, the use of big data and training and testing, we actually need a lot of computing power. How is that? Where does that power come? Is, where, where, where's the power coming from? And um, who is using it is extremely important. And when it comes to S, there are still uh, different aspects to it. Um, my, um, my biggest concern at the time was actually the content moderators. Because when you think of big tech, they employ a lot of contractors. Some of them are direct employees, but they're also contractors. They are asked to um, um, uh, get involved in tagging uh, when it comes to uh, uh, visual recognition of materials, but they're also employed for content moderation. They are um, asked to review what is available on social media. And I felt that um, <clears throat> there is an element of are these people uh, put in a situation where they have adequate support for um, their health and well-being. And at the same time, um, what, what is the impact of um, machine being part of the decision-making process, not necessarily the whole of decision-making process? Um, and, um, and, and, and how do we allocate responsibility and accountability? And when it comes to governance, it's much broader Every company is going through digital transformation and everybody said they want to use AI, but what does it actually mean? I mean, as David has said, we haven't really reached what we thought of as, as intelligence. We are essentially trying to use um, a what we call a function approximator 
um, to to look at data that and 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 to look at the way we classify information in order to discover a pattern. That is actually what we are doing, and that is closely connected to investment because. Um, it's an element of impacting the long-term strategy of a company, as well as the way they manage risks. And uh, a very clear risk is that the supply chain risk is not adequately managed because more and more companies are now interested in using AI. And not everyone has the uh, right team to understand um, the implications or the potential implications of buying a what we call the plug and play situation of a third party product. So therefore there is E, S and G elements that are connected to the use of function approximator or machine learning or AI uh, in, in any company. And of course, big tech play a big part because they are the ones who produce the foundational uh, model. If you've heard of any companies that says, that, oh, we use Birch or we use TensorFlow. Well, they are the foundational building blocks of AI that is being used by everyone. So do we understand the risk? Do we understand the opportunities? I think this is what we can you know, further discuss here. Cool. So yeah, there's, there's, there's an awful lot to unpack there, uh, uh, Christine, especially your, your last points on uh, black boxes is, is something that I've been uh, uh, discussed uh, a lot before because it's something that we, we use from time to time in uh, kind of climate modeling and things like that. And when you don't know what's kind of happening within these uh function approximators as uh, as as you call them um these tools that we have uh we uh you know we can't unpack that and really you know get down to the bottom of how that's steering us and why that's steering us a certain way um yeah but before before we get into the real nitty gritty on uh um AI, uh, I guess it is. Uh, it would just be be uh, good to to kind of have a think about a little bit more about the kind of impacts of uh, big tech, kind of more broadly uh, on big our tech writ large. Big tech writ large, yes, on on our portfolios. I just find it quite interesting that people think of big tech as the uh, the uh, the the scrappy disruptors of the world, and of course these are all now the the largest market capital uh, capitalization companies uh, in history um and are not necessarily the uh, the scrappy disruptors and uh, that we thought we they were uh, and yet you know this is a very quickly developing area so i wonder if I, I might be able to turn to anna now and and say you know kind of within the ethical advisory board what what are you thinking about in in um big tech and broader issues um in, including artificial intelligence machine learning etc but but more uh, broadly i guess yeah absolutely i think i mean one of the points that christine makes is is really got me thinking actually about you know kind of what what is ai and we think we understand what ai is um and and actually we increasingly know it's really pervasive in our society and so we can see it you know we can see kind of positive aspects of ai you know kind of you know almost everywhere kind of healthcare you know detecting and diagnosing you know different conditions we see it in agriculture um you know kind of understanding the best time to plant crops or you know even when we get our uber you know it's ai technologies there that is understanding you know it's calculating the fastest route for us and as you say in climate tech and you know reducing emissions but but where ai becomes really key um and quite 
complex. And what we're really thinking about is where AI is deployed in areas that directly impacts people. So you can have AI making decisions about things um, and, and that may have no impact. But when you have AI, and as Christine said, basically what AI is, it's a kind of computational process which goes through a series of processes in order to reduce complexity into certain categories or classifications. And so that, that's, that process of kind of quantifying and simplifying um, is, it can be really useful. And obviously in those examples of healthcare and you know, agriculture, that, that's extremely useful. But when it comes to people, that's actually quite problematic mm. because classifying people or reducing people into categories is quite fraught and we know from history that that's really fraught we've got a long history of of you know scientists social scientists attempting to do that um but attempting to reduce the vast complexity of humans into into a categorization or a narrow categorization um as we have seen, it can reinforce historic inequalities. It can reinforce, you know, um, racial bias. All of all of the complex things about humans getting reduced into, you know, something kind of that we think we might be able to define mathematically mm. um, can be very problematic. And and we've seen that, and that that's where we've seen, you know, unintended consequences emerging. Um, and and that's a particular, you know. It's, issue that we at the Ethical Investment Advisory Group are really looking at. And that's where big tech uh, really comes in, because big tech is applying uh, AI and machine learning, which, as Christine said, machine learning is basically AI, but then taking other bits of data and learning patterns from other bits of data and then applying it to current data. Uh, and when that's when that's happening to define, decide um, decisions that affect people, that's when it gets um, really quite problematic. I, I think it's its interesting. A lot of what I hear about AI, um, it, 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 it reminds me of uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, the AI bit generally only does the fast thinking. And we know that fast thinking uh, is the source of cognitive biases because you're trying to filter information very quickly and this is where stereotypes come from and things in our own mind. And, you know, you, you can jump to conclusions that are not necessarily correct. Um, and through using AI as a tool, we're actually potentially reinforcing the um, cognitive biases of however that was programmed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, I think if anybody's ever tried to quantify you as a as a human, you know, it's very difficult to be kind of put into a particular box or you, know, you don't want to feel that your uniqueness and your individuality is, you know, suddenly can be defined by a particular label. And then and then who gets to decide that label? Who gets to decide you know, what that label should, you know, should actually be? And, and, and we had this, you know, the kind of classic live example with the a-level algorithm a couple of summers ago um, and that that really brought to the the kind of fore of everyday society the issues inherent in 
in kind of algorithms and it also it was quite complex because of the you know what that did to the trust of society when people looked on and and saw that their their kind of whole futures were being decided by by an algorithm you know that was that was really just yeah, for context, that, that, that was um, for some of those listeners that aren't sort of UK based, you had the exam system in the UK, the government minister basically um, requiring a, a, well, through through the regulator, um, an algorithm be deployed to mark or, or was it the actual marking of exams? Well, yeah, I mean, I think in essence, what happened is it took uh, the teachers. So obviously, last summer, the students couldn't set their A-levels. So it took the teachers estimated grades, and then it applied an algorithm, well, yeah, which took into account kind of past performance data from their own schools. And then it kind of allocated it on a on a kind of distribution of great data, but and and that's kind of classic machine learning technique. So mm-hmm. so you t- you know it learnt things from past data and applied that to current data. And and what happened was this, the teachers who obviously knew the pupils really well and they assigned individual grades, but then the algorithm was applied, um, you know, based on that past data and those grades were modified. So the kind of difference in the individuality of each student was modified by the generality of past data. Um, and, and, and what it ended up happening was what you could almost imagine would happen, which was that it advantaged um, people who were in schools that had done previously very well, and it disadvantaged people that were in schools that had previously not done very well. Um, and so it's the, you know, if you think about the kind of simplifying and generalizing nature of what algorithms do, that was a very real impact where it reduced vast complexity and individuality of students into generalization. And it directly impacted the poorest kids for more disadvantaged yeah. schools and yeah. the more wealthy kids, many of those, get, and a number of those that went to private schools. Yeah benefited from that and there was public outcry and obviously the government rolled back etc but nonetheless at one level yeah it's that that was a very clear example of societal impact yeah Yeah, I mean it discriminated along kind of economic lines and class lines in a way that the algorithm was meant to do that's what algorithms do they discriminate Um, but and that's where it's problematic when it's applied to people uh, because it's very very problematic when you discriminate um, I, I wanted people. to I wanted to bring Christine in on, on that very point because I think Christine has a, a, an interesting example uh, regarding uh, CVs um, and how one might present their CVs. Um, if if I, I'm sure I can see her smiling on the Zoom now, she knows the example <laughs> that uh, I wanted to to regale us with. But then if you could expand that example into how that is potentially being used uh, now for uh, screening, et cetera? Well, not not just CV. That's a really good question. Actually, we, we see that people gaming, gaming the uh, natural language processing capa- ca- uh, capability, um, of, uh, which, which is a way of um, using AI, with the way we call AI, to read reports instead of having people read reports. And that has been in place as a... Uh, quite a common uh, activity uh, in the investment research um, arena anyway. Um, In fact, I've read um, um, 
in, uh, I've read news or, or a report that talks about that in the US, for example, over 95% of uh, company reports are read by machine. Mm. And then they usually aggregate it into some sort of scores that, that uh, assess the, the disclosure um, uh, performance of a company. So natural language um, uh, processing or natural language understanding, NLU, its, uh, it's, its use has been around for quite some time. But when it comes to application in human capital, um, um, more um, of the AI techniques are now using in screening CVs, like hiring processes. So um, that it again is a simple, actually, it's a simple matching process. Um, you take keywords from the job description and then apply it to the CV of the job applicants. And the best match would get shortlisted. Mm -hmm. So um, for those who are writing CVs for machines to read, they're actually um, uh, uh, tutoring processes for graduates now on how to write CVs specifically for machines to read. And there's also AI use in uh, uh, video interviews. Um, I understand that uh, now graduates, especially, they are now being faced uh, with um, uh, being being asked to um, do a self-recording of videos and send it in as part of the um, multi-stage application. And there are a number of problems with that. Um, in fact, I've, I've spoken to our neurodiverse uh, within HSBC Asset Management. We have different DE&I working groups. I was talking to my colleagues in the, the neurodiverse working group and um, and uh, one of them actually highlighted that this is actually problematic if if uh, if a neurotypical um, data points are being used to train a video AI to say that well in the perfect stage in the in the, in the perfect state this is what we would expect from a perfect candidate. But as we know, some neurodiverse candidate might be hearing impaired and the way they um, deliver their, um, their words might not be as clear and they, get, they potentially could get marked down by this. So if an AI video is used in, in hiring, we need to actually make sure, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be used, but at least we should be aware what kind of data is being used to train that. Have we taken into account that there's neurodiverse uh, way of assessing the different capabilities of that uh, candidate in order to put that forward. And same for CV, it's very easy to game um, uh, a CV now uh, if we know that the keyword matching processes are already in place. And a quick change of pace now as we go to Rory Sullivan for his book of the week. Welcome to Book of the Week with Rory Sullivan. This week's book is Leadership by Eddie Jones. Now, I'm actually going to break a promise that I made when I started doing these book reviews. I promised myself at the beginning that I would not do a hatch job on a book. I saw this as being an opportunity to bring books I'd enjoyed or found stimulating or interesting to a wider audience, and that it actually was going to be a, a podcast or a contribution to a podcast about the joy of reading. I'm going to have to break my promise. I apologize. Um, to basically to adopt or to adapt the old adage, I come not to praise Jones, but to bury him. So let, let me explain um, the context. So Eddie Jones is the English 
the English rugby coach. He's a abrasive Australian, but but you know, very entertaining, well worth listening to. His book, My Life in Rugby, was one of my favorite sports books over the last couple of years. As a teacher, he um, brought that sort of structured framework for analyzing, experience for learning, and he applied it both to his career in rugby and his his life as a teacher and as a coach. It's a really interesting, really well written book with with lots of of um, sort of really interesting insights. Um, his new book, Leadership, promised so much. You know, five elements of leadership. Great, I can cope with that. That's that's sort of a one handed list to deal with. Um, it's sort of interspersed with sporting vignettes and a, a few little insights and and nuggets of of information. What could possibly go wrong? But I realized as I was reading the book, and very early on, in fact, that I wasn't reading a book about leadership. I was reading a book that was a bully's charter. So let me explain. At the elite level of sport, the coach is the key, the key player. And this is particularly true at international level, in this case, rugby, where players have no choice. There's only one country they can play for. There's presumably in the main, there's only one country they want to play for. And in order to play for their country, they have to have a good relationship with the coach. You know, they have to be obviously good at their sport, but they also have to fit in with the coach and the coach's view. That gives the player, um, the, or that gives the coach huge power, particularly when you think about players. It's not like us in professional careers where we have 40 years to, I don't know, make, make it or make a mess of it. Um, they have, you know, windows of three, five, 10 years, and then their time is done. So in that context, the coach is a hugely important figure who essentially defines whether their careers are successful or fulfill their potential or not. Um, and, and, and before I start to comment on the book, I, I mean, I also acknowledge the, the brutality of top-level sport. I also understand that coaches have to make decisions. So, so this is not about um, a coach not making an unpopular decision or choosing some players over others or anything else. But so what's wrong with the book? There basically is that Jones discusses his players. He discusses his current players, those who he's working with at the moment, and he discusses their leadership characteristics. He identifies a number who he says aren't leaders or can't be leaders. Um, and he describes and deconstructs his players' personalities. Now, of course, that's fascinating because we all want those insights into top-level sport and those people we see on television. Um, but the problem is that his players have no right of recourse or reply. I mean, who is going to stand up and say, hey, Eddie, what you did in that book or what you said about me is wrong? You know, who's going to call him out for this? He's basically in a position of power and he's abusing his power. He is, he is, he is, he is, criticizing his players who, who genuinely don't have a voice. And he's also sort of not just affecting um, those players during his tenure, but he's also creating impressions and images of those players, which will inform the next coach. So whoever the, the, follows him as English rugby coach will have to make decisions about who leads the team and who's captain. And Jones's views as set out in this book are clearly going to shape that. So, so let's deal with it. So what's a bully? So is this a bully in action? Well, the definition of a bully is someone who seeks to harm or intimidate those who they perceive, perceive as vulnerable. You know, this is a bully's book. He's, the players are vulnerable because they, can't, they have no voice, they can't answer back, or they have no power, and he's seeking to intimidate them. You know, he's a small man trying to use his power um, in, in a completely inappropriate way. 
I think in 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 identifying this, I think I'm also going to to make a strong prediction. And, and Adam Matthews, the co-host of the podcast, may disagree. In writing this book, Jones has demonstrated why England cannot win the next World Cup. Because if if what you need to win win a World Cup, you know, I'll I'll, I'll take advice from those who've done. You know, you need players who can show leadership on the field, who have the capacity for independent thought, um, who can respond appropriately under great pressure and who are not afraid. Jones has signaled to his players, he's basically told them they cannot be leaders um, because he is going to use his power to stop them down. With this book, effectively, Jones has written, written off the next World Cup. Um, I think as a, so, so I think as a book of leadership, it is a book about how not to be a leader. I, I really believe Jones should be ashamed of having written the book. It, it does not reflect well on him. Um, and I think it undermines his role. And I have to say, frankly, as a reader, it, it's a book that I actually felt cheapened by, I felt personally cheapened for having bought and having read. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sad book and it's a disappointing book. Um, and Adam, I'm sorry, you're not going to win the World Cup. Has anyone tested it, like put different names with the same CV to see if that triggers different results? Well, I had done it myself years ago, but that has nothing to do with AI. Uh, I actually shared it at a diversity project uh, when it was launched a few years ago uh, because my surname is, is a Chinese surname, Chow. And then um, I, my husband's surname is a British surname. So I actually send out the same CV under different surname. And uh, I, I get I, I receive five times more in, uh, invitation to interviews using a British surname. I actually shared that in the diversity project uh, launch a few years ago, and I remember that the audience just gasped because that is a clear <laughs> as, as a real case of differentiation. But there's nothing to do with AI anyway. But that that, that would just be straightforward prejudice. Yeah, it would be easy to code into uh, into uh, AI whether you did it on purpose or did it by accident. <laughs> um, Anna. I think the the thing in that also could be it could get coded in AI, but it could be coded in a way that you wouldn't actually know, and you wouldn't understand that actually there's this neural language, you know, there's this kind of processing which is picking up certain labels, um, and that's that's something that's really key in these sorts of kind of human capital um, AI tools is explicability. The idea of understanding, okay, so so what actually, the outcome that's coming, how did it arrive at that decision? And so, Christine, in your example, you can see exactly why you got more responses on, on using one name to the other. But it may be that when you're using, if you're a company that's using these kind of tools and you get all of these CVs, you may not know, okay, I've got this big stack here, but I don't know of what's been filtered out. I don't know what's been discriminated against because I don't know how the algorithm has made its decisions. And that's that's where actually the idea of kind of explicability is really quite um, complex. It's really important to understand, okay, so how did you make these decisions? How did you label your data? What sort of data did you use? And, and what assumptions are you making when you make those labels? So that, I mean, th those are really important parameters about how we govern those skills because th those technologies because not all of it is it, I mean clearly there's an advantage here as well and there's some real positives I mean you, you gave the example Christine of um, the ability to look through company reporting and generating um, 
assessments of, of huge amounts of information that now has been put made public. I've I've been shown by Dr. Mikhail Nachmani how you can use AI, or she's increasingly using AI to assess climate legislation around the world's parliaments, and basically it enables the most amazing in ability to sort of zero in on keywords in renewables or planning that means that you can then draw out from this huge data set sort of a whole raft of things that it would have taken an inordinate amount of time to do if you were just doing that as a person but at the same time it's it's the rules governing where this goes is in boundaries where there's real social impacts versus and I still don't think any of what what she was demonstrated replaced the fact you still needed someone informed at the end to then sift that information and make informed judgments it's where that bit's sort of absent and you're being presented with results I think that that's where we're getting into tricky territory or am I simplifying this too much no, I, I think that's absolutely key. This idea of kind of human or, you know, kind of contextual um, opinion. So so one example that really springs to mind actually in big tech, as you were talking, Adam, I was thinking of was, you know, there's that famous example where one of the, there's a, um, there's an app within Google that labels photographs. And there was a photograph of, um, of a black couple that was labeled as apes. Um, and this went, you know, kind of viral on Twitter and Google had to respond to that. And, and these labeling, you know, that was the, 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 the program had absolutely no idea. The algorithm had no idea how, how, how evil that was, you know, how awful that was to label, you know, human beings as, as apes. Um, it, it just went away and did it because of how it had been trained. It, you know, the algorithm has, was fixing on labels and it had no idea of the vast kind of contextual, um, uh, you, know, you know, wider context of that. And, and what's really interesting on that example is that when this was obviously, you know, raised with Google, Google said, you know, that's horrific, that's awful, and we absolutely, you know, will stop that. But what they, um, what they did, actually, there was an investigation by a piece of work by Wired magazine that looked to see, okay, so how do you fix this? How do you fix this problem where it's producing outcomes, your, your AI system is producing outcomes, which are not uh, which a, a human being can see is is plainly wrong and actually quite evil. Um, and what they did was that rather than going back into the algorithm and fixing the problem in the algorithm, they actually just had to do a, they had to stop labeling anything, any images with anything that, that could be offensive. And so rather than going back um, and trying to figure out, okay, where did this problem arise? How did it train? You know, that's a part of kind of machine learning. It was identifying patterns that that it couldn't, um, it, yeah, identifying patterns that then couldn't be explained. And so rather than, you know, fixing the problem in the AI, actually what they did was they just did this kind of, you know, binary method of, okay, we're not going to label any images um, with, you know, nasty, you know, um, terms. Yeah, I, th I think w w one of the ways I see uh, AI is is extremely useful, and it's not in this, you know, can it label your photos on mass and things like that. It's as a it's as a tool for human operators. You know, as as a professional, you know, I can see how uh, AI uh, will, is creeping more and more into my area. You know, being able to see language in reports. But then it's like, what do you do with that language? You know, you, well, you highlight it to a human and say, this is where you can find that section that you're looking for. And then someone can read that. 
you know, for me, it's almost like um, in manufacturing, you have humans on a line with robots. And robots do some of the work and, you know, humans will do other parts of the work uh, and there will be bits of checking and, and so on and so forth. You know, it's it's an adjunct to the human operator and that's very useful and then you can get both sides of the coin it's when you write these um algorithms and then just send them off into the world um to 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 go and do their thing um shows maybe a little bit too much confidence from some of the uh, tech companies yeah and i think um i think you know it there's not just a need for kind of human oversight at the end of this. You don't want human oversight at the kind of outcome end, but actually if we can start to kind of raise these sorts of issues right at the beginning, right at the tech end, you know, right at the designing, where actually when you're designing outcome, uh, when you're designing algorithms, you're actually factoring in what are the outcomes? What are the likely outcomes likely to be? You know, what are the consequences likely to be? Um, because, you know, you kind of realize that all modeling, you know, as we said at the beginning, it's a kind of reductionist simplifying, there are going to be outcomes that are unintended. Uh, you know, how can you start designing these where um, actually you're, you're really aiming to a fairness, you know, you're aiming for a, you know, a, a correct kind of, you know, a, a good right outcome right at the beginning of that stage. And, you know, and that, that happens within the data set. So you've got to be really, you know, you know, logical and methodical about your data set, um, uh, but it but it also happens in how you are designing those those algorithms. You know, with the end in mind. Yeah, <clears throat> I absolutely agree with that, and I also want to highlight that it is really important for board level to have that oversight. Because a lot of the AI applications usually started with businesses saying, wow, this is really cool. This is really going to help us um, grow the business or address the risks and issues. And you start off with individual business functions saying, isn't that a good idea? And then the next stage would be, oh, why don't we do a due diligence of that particular product provider? First of all, are the right people doing the due diligence? Do they have the expertise to understand the underlying data that is being used for training and for testing? And when it applies to, in a real world situation, are they applying to the similar population characteristics that where the AI algorithm is being trained on and tested on? If they're not, you would potentially have a mismatch of unintended outcomes, that where it's coming from. And I know that we asked the board to do a lot of things now, there's climate governance, there's you know, biodiversity, but if we believe that digital transformation is what all businesses are going through now, and there is, business critical, and AI is a big part of that digital transformation to improve efficiency, to Im, Im, Im improve our insights into what's going on, then obviously the board would have that responsibility to make sure that um, it is um, explainable, it is transparent, it, we take accountability and the outcomes are delivered as intended. So I can't stress that more, it is a board level responsibility. I mean, thank you. Christine, for sort of bringing it into where where's that relationship with us as investors and companies in which we have holdings and what what is the discussion we should be having them just for context if there's any weird background mind I've got a hailstorm bashing <laughs> my windows in the background and David's Same got here. a dog that, that's demanding feeding so um, apologies if there's any funny noises on, on this podcast that the, the benefits of recording from home but um, so I, I, I mean 
how, how are companies responding to this, the, the engagement that you've, you've been leading and how, how also are you finding other investors sort of picking up that, that issue? And I, mm. and I just would, my experience today of, of the responsiveness of particularly the, the sort of the made social media companies and platforms um, hasn't been the greatest. And I, I think um, it's been quite challenging for investors to engage with them. I think they're getting better. But um, when you had the Christchurch massacre in, in New Zealand, um, you had the most horrific um, terrorist act that was amplified by social media platforms um, where the, 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 the murders were basically live broadcast. And the message mm. from that terrorist was given this incredible platform as a result. And you even had mainstream media actually put in some of the feed on their sites before they realised what on earth they were doing. But... And then there was like quite intensive engagement, both led by the government of New Zealand, um, but at the same time, um, also by New Zealand super um, annuation funds and, and a number of investors, and we supported them in that. And yet we've really struggled to get through to them the seriousness of this. And I mean, I think at a human level, of course, you saw this, but the actual willingness to go to the point Anna you made about, okay, we'll try and find the fix rather than actually we're going to go in and fix the, the underlying problem. And I'm just wondering how you're finding that, Christine, and the, the engagement you're, you're, you're having. Yeah, well, definitely. Uh, the engagement on AI, you sh- we, we started out as, a, as an industry. It's not just me. There's a lot of people working on that. We started out as asking technology companies to come up with AI principles. Um, and those AI principles, however, not all of them are translated into concrete action. And that's where I think that we need to have a clear connection between human rights impact assessment and the use of ethical and, and transparent AI. Because the principles is absolutely necessary in order to understand where are the areas of application or potential application and to for internal education within the company and say, we believe as a corporate or an institution that this is important and these are our principles. But, but taking it up a level to what are we trying to look for in terms of um, performance indicators, how it is being implemented, targeted human rights impact assessment in high-risk areas should be conducted and companies should be able to explain how they identify these issues, maybe through a heat map, human rights impact heat map, that is more forward looking rather than controversies based so that they can look at specific areas of application or in a particular region or particular platform or particular issue in order to do that assessment. And then the next stage would be when it comes to the whole AI generation process, what are the KPIs we can put in place to ask the company to say, well, this is what we want to see because prove to me that you are doing it. So um, actually Anna and I were um, uh, talking and she kindly contributed to a a paper that we've been working on and we're hopefully hoping to to, um, publish with the London School of Economics um, uh, shortly. Uh, We should be having a round table on the 7th of April um, um, to to talk about this paper. It is called the Investor Expectations on Ethical AI in Human Capital Management. We we put together the human rights impact and how it's being applied in the workforce on hiring and workforce planning and performance assessment on learning, mobility. And look at that and, and asking companies, if you are thinking of using AI on your people, do it. Do it with a very clear objective of what you're trying to achieve and be aware of any potential historical uh, biases that might exist. But um, 
we, we, we do believe that there is efficiency um, gains potential uh, from it, but um, apply with, with, care. with care. That's but right. Does that get to the root of the problem? I, I mean, because I, I mean, I, I think absolutely essential what you're saying and what you're spelling out in terms of those principles and, and the wider application, if you're going to use it, but does it get, are you addressing also the, the root cause of some of the underlying inbuilt issues here or do we need to, or is this the best way for us to sort of in, engage that challenge? Um, I think I think it would be a big step forward if people are happy to look into you know where does the data come data comes from who is responsible for it I think increasingly you're seeing more discussion about the um, concentration risk of big data we talk about big data all the time but who is generating that data mm-hmm. some of the older data sets that is originated from from the academic uh, institutions CIFRA 10 for example there were issues um, this is used for vision. Uh, imagery uh, recognition, but um, initially it started as a project uh, at university and it was crowdsourced. Maybe we need to have much more robust processes to put the right data in place before we even begin thinking about yeah. application. And I think we are working towards that and more and more people are are speaking up on this. And of course, the EU AI Act that is going to um, uh, put in place next year is 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 going to drive a lot of that, um, and I don't know if you realise that uh, last week um, the um, Bank of England and FCA has co-authored, uh, sorry, published a final report on AI and ML and financial services. So that particular report talks about that what, what regulators should be doing, uh, providing clarity on regulation and policy with regard to AI in financial services, including. Applications such as you know loan approvals, but that's not the only one. It's it also encourages engagement with a range of different public and private stakeholders. So we have the the license to engage, shall we say? Mm-hmm. And, and Anna, from your from your perspective, yeah, I think um, I think one of the things on um, under like coming back to your question about you know you know is that going to work? I think one of the things that is really interesting on social media algorithms is the fact that. You know, we really don't understand the longitudinal impact of some of these algorithms because they've just not been allowed around for very long. Um, and so, so, for example, you know, we see things, you know, misinformation circulating on, on social media or disinformation and hate speech. And you know, what, what is the long term impact of that over kind of 10, 20, 15, 20 years? Um, and actually, I don't know if you saw um, at Christmas or heard at Christmas the um, wreath, the BBC wreath lectures. Now, Stuart Russell delivered those this year and he's a professor of AI. Uh, he's written a really, really good book, actually, Human um, Compatible, um, um, which is really worth you know, reading if you want a kind of quick info into AI. But he spoke, uh, one thing that struck me in those lectures was that he said that understanding uh, the algorithms in social media was one of the most complex algorithms that he had to understand, which I found quite, you know, kind of fascinating. Um, and so I think there is a real need for us or, or for, you know, the industry, for the tech industry and for civil society to undertake more research and to have more understanding. And, you know, we're getting some understanding of what is going on on social media platforms and we hear them through litigation or through whistleblowers. So we've got a lot of information through Frances Haugen last year when she you know, did a, an enormous kind of release of documents. Um, and a lot of that information were studies that 
you know, Facebook had undertaken and a lot of people thought might be true, but weren't quite sure. And a lot of the, that information that came out was uh, research that the company themselves had undertaken. Um, but it's but it's very difficult for anybody else to get access to that sort of information because there's very uh, discreet, you know, there's very tight data rules. You can't just share all of this data. You know, there's GDPR rules. Um, and so I think one of the big the big things that we need to have and the technology uh, companies need to do is to enable greater research into the impact of algorithms so that everybody can understand, OK, but, you know, what 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 is actually the impact of some of these algorithms? And at the moment, we don't have a data access regime. We don't have a regulatory environment that allows these tech companies to do that research and to share that with us. And so there's a number of changes that need to, you know, the, the regulatory world needs to catch up really quickly. You know, David spoke about at the beginning, but you know, tech is moving fast and shaping things and regulatory. Yeah, that that's happening. You know, Christine said the EU Act, EU AI Act. Um, so the regulatory world needs to catch up very quickly, and we need to be much much better informed before we can start. You know, working on that kind of policy area. It's kind of admitting what we don't know. We're, humans are great at uncertainties. I think what the two of you have done is sort of, I feel this is almost like a part one of big tech discussion yeah, we where did, we've covered, we, we've scratched an element here. We, we, start we, started to look, we? <laughs> we started to look at some of the elements where I think best practice has been defined and expectations and that, that dynamic between the investor and companies that use in applications. And, and Anna, I think you're talking to also something more broadly and also that relationship between us and public policy as well i think there's there's a lot more to be got into here um but yeah definitely definitely want to to follow up on because you know the the date of recording this this podcast is going to come out about the 4th of march we're currently recording on the 21st of february and uh you know we've got russian tanks on the borders of ukraine and no one appears to know what's happening and uh yeah I think another uh, topic I'd like to discuss at a later date would be kind of how the weaponization of, of things like social media and information versus disinformation, bot campaigns and uh, and stuff like that. It's all fascinating stuff. And, and how David was allowed to have a TikTok account. I, that's that secret between you and me, Adam. <laughs> don't tell everyone about my TikTok account. Um, I don't have a TikTok account. Um, but we could, if we get enough interest, I tell you, you know, if we if we if we get um, a, a thousand uh, uh, subscribers uh, on uh, on iTunes, uh, Adam and I will start up a talking responsibly TikTok uh, TikTok account and do some TikTok dances. Um, so will we heck? If that's 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 a promise uh, from Adam there. Well done, thank you for that. Don't worry, your 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 kids can teach you how to do the moves and stuff. It'll all be good. Um, and then, uh, yeah, that that's so. To all our listeners out there, try and get the message out. And the more subscribers that we have, um, the uh, the more likely you are to to see our TikTok videos. So, I will <laughs> that 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 uh, moment. I will bring everything random to random turn a close. Hey, you start with the TikTok, mate. Don't don't throw this on me, brother. Um, I am going to say thank you very much to our fantastic guests today, uh, Anna McDonald uh, and Christine Chow. Uh, Anna, wh where can we find you? Are you on LinkedIn? Uh, are you on yep. Twitter? Do you are you active? I'm mostly on LinkedIn. on LinkedIn. I'm not a great tweeter. I'm more of a 
lurker on Twitter. Cool. Uh, so LinkedIn, Anna McDonald at well, Church of England. Great. Well, we'll put a link to your uh, uh, account in the show notes. Uh, Christine, um, same question. Where can our listeners find you? Uh, LinkedIn would be good. LinkedIn would be good. And will you be uh, providing details for uh, the aforementioned roundtable and the uh, and the paper that you're releasing? Will they be released on LinkedIn as well? Yes, absolutely. Um, well, it depends on what release on LinkedIn means. Well, I'll you'll, make you'll that announcement once. Yeah. I'll put a share, um, and as, as depending on how many events that, that that different institutions that are involved in this paper that are going to put up. But uh, the, the the first one I know of is is by the London School of Economics. Brilliant. Uh, the the inclusion in this, the inclusion initiative as yeah. well. So there's a strong element of human centered approach to this uh, whole uh, paper. Great. So if people want to, if, if listeners want to uh, keep uh, abreast of all that, um, follow Christine on LinkedIn and you'll be able to see that as it happens. So thank you to uh, Anna and Christine again. Thank you to Adam. And as is usual, I'm going to thank you, our dear listeners, for uh, sticking with us with this. Uh, we're certainly having a lot of fun recording these episodes and we hope you're enjoying listening to them please share linkedin is uh, one of our main platforms so if you're able to uh, share links for the podcast on your networks in linkedin um, it helps us reach uh, more ears and uh, we're, we're trying to use this platform to educate as best we can and hopefully entertain a little while we're at it so with that said and done i'm going to thank you again and say Goodbye for this time. Oh,